we're really asking new questions of the past. Among them, what were regular people doing? What were the poor doing? What were women doing? What were people of color doing? Questions that before, when we, especially when we talked about the American Civil War, we were talking about Pickett's charge going up over that hill and why that worked or didn't work. We were talking about how Robert E. Lee came and met Grant over coming on through Petersburg and had, and here come the baby boomers. What about the regular people? That's Christy Coleman, CEO of the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia, and former president of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit, Michigan. Coleman, as you can probably tell, is a public historian. Her work, as she, as she describes it, excuse me, is to take the findings or the interpretations of academic historians currently working and bring them to life for the public, as she says, to make the work relevant to contemporary audiences. Coleman says in her talk that, inevitably, new generations will make new meanings of past events. So baby boomers will understand the causes and significance of the Civil War, say, very differently than will millennials. In her talk, Coleman addresses some of these generational changes. She starts by considering the ways in which the causes of the Civil War have been really horribly misunderstood. She helps make sense of that old refrain you probably used to always hear, I certainly heard it a lot, from self-appointed Civil War buffs, that the war was really about states' rights. Coleman addresses that reading and then talks about her work at the Civil War Museum. A brief note before we start, for the past year or so, I've hosted an episode of this podcast every week. However, for a variety of reasons, I'm going to have to start hosting an episode once every two weeks. You'll probably hear from a couple new hosts soon who will fill in. Scott St. Louis is one, program manager of the Common Ground Initiative, and so is Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast. That's it for the announcement. Let's get to Coleman's talk, which I really do think, I've, I've listened to this a few times, I really do think it's one of the best lectures ever given at the Howenstein Center, so I'm excited for you to hear it. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. I'm delighted to be here, and I want to thank everyone at the Hohenstein Center, uh, as well as the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity. This is a um, very special opportunity to talk to you all. Um, more often than not, I am invited to participate or to come to communities that really are in crisis, uh, my own included. Um, if you know anything, as, as he shared in the beginning, um, when I came to Richmond in 2008, um, I went there for two really good reasons. One, I wanted to be back in my home state of Virginia. Number two, I could not believe that there was this gutsy little museum in the heart of the former capital of the Confederacy that was exploring the American Civil War from three perspectives, Union, Confederate, and African American. And I have to tell you what is really startling about that is that when it opened to the public in 2006, two years before I got there, it was the first museum in the country to do that. So, I like to challenge. Here I am. <laughs> Since that time, the little museum on the riverfront has become uh, a beacon for our colleagues in the field exploring the American Civil War. And we have been called upon by cities, communities, other institutions to help these conversations. But just as Scott said, you can't have meaningful conversations about what this all means if we can't get the history right. We have to start there. And the American Civil War is perhaps the most contested period in American history. The meaning of the war itself is vastly different depending on whom you're speaking to. Now, how is that even remotely possible? Two big reasons. The biggest reason is this was 
America's trauma, unlike any we had seen. This war, fought over four years, claimed 750,000 soldiers. Now, comparatively, that would be the equivalent of us losing eight to eight and a half million of our soldiers. Right? The second thing that happened during this war is that we had another set of trauma that was going on. And that is 200 years at that point, the trauma of the institution of slavery on the American psyche. The strengthening and the establishment of white supremacy on these shores. And these two realities <coughs> slammed into each other. And like any trauma, there are five stages of grief. Number one is the shock of it all. How could this have happened? Second part of that is the denial. Well, it didn't really happen like that. And then we bargain. Well, it wasn't really fought about slavery, it was about states' rights. Because we haven't reconciled this issue of what to do with all these four million people who are now freemen and women. So we'll bargain about what it meant. And we've languished in this space for 150 years. Very few people actually moving, well, actually quite a few people moving into anger and staying there. before we ever get to accepting what it was really about. This conflict, was the clash of our ideals as a nation, of what the founders intended, what America would be. Was it really going to be the place where all men were created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or were those words only intended, only intended for white men? Now, you can argue all day long about whether that was their intent, because that's who was the product or the receivers of that, the time. But here's the beautiful thing. What makes this country so remarkable is even in all of our failings, we believe that. We fight for it. We push the boundaries of what those words mean and who it includes. But every now and then, oh my goodness, every now and then, we come back to how are we going to remember these things, these inconvenient truths, these very difficult processes? And I, one of the things that I hear frequently <clears throat> when I'm out and about, especially people who you know, fashion themselves as you know, really Civil War buffs or they really love this history or what have you, and they say, well, you know, it's, it's really a very complicated war and it has all of these elements and it has all of these things that are going on and all of that is absolutely true. And I didn't learn it that way and you know, back in, when I was in school we learned about this and what about so-and-so? Here's the thing. Every generation asks new questions of the past. Every single one. And in my job as a public historian, because that's what I consider myself, not what I, that's what I am. I am a public historian. My job every day, regardless of the institution that I am working for at the time, my job is to take the scholarship that's produced by academics, review the archives and the materials that we have on our, in our own collections, and then interpret that bring it to life, make it relevant for contemporary audiences. So yes, the history will change, and here's a perfect example of how that happens. And then I'm gonna really get into my speech. 
Coming out of the 1960s, you troublesome, troublesome, troublesome baby boomers were really asking new questions of the past. Among them, what were regular people doing? What were the poor doing? What were women doing? What were people of color doing? Questions that before, when we, especially when we talked about the American Civil War, we were talking about Pickett's charge going up over that hill and why that worked or didn't work. We were talking about how Robert E. Lee came and met Grant over coming on through Petersburg and how, and how brave those soldiers were when they came around that. And they fought like that, that. And here come the baby boomers. What about the regular people? So people like me in public history, working with academics, we go back through the archives. We go back to the history. We go back to the facts. And we look at it, looking for the answers to those questions. And we get new insights. And those new insights inform the larger narrative. We revise history all the time. It's what we do because of you and your questions. People are now asking, this generation, millennials, they want to know about other peoples of color and what they were doing. They want to know what was the global scene like, because they're a very global community. They want to know what the rest of the world thought about what we were doing. They want to know more salacious stuff that we probably wouldn't have asked 25 years ago. What were women doing other than making socks? and I get to go and tell them. They were hookers! <laughs> and here's how, and we legalized it. Why? We legalized it because men were getting sick and unable to fight. So we set up women's hospitals for the first time. Hospitals just for women, to treat women and their issues. We made prostitution legal in Washington, D.C., New York City, Memphis, Nashville, Tennessee. Became legalized prostitution so that we could protect our soldiers. And the impact of that is the rates of disease, venereal disease, dropped 90%, which meant more men were able to go off and die. Every generation has new questions that it asks, and this generation is asking, how should we remember? Why? Because our landscape tells us something that we have learned is quite different. Tourists, museum goers, explore the American Civil War by visiting monuments, museums, and historical markers that are scattered all over the United States, and they document battles and events. Collectively, these places should remind us that the American Civil War altered everything in America, the landscape, the economy, politics, social structure, and much, much more. However, exactly what view of the war's cause, course, and legacies are visitors actually getting? A recent study by the Pew Research Center found that more than 48% of respondents believe the primary cause of the Civil War was states' rights, tariffs, nullification debates, compared to 38% noting slavery as the cause. This is far from surprising when one considers most Civil War sites and battlefields are principally in the South. Most of these sites are run by state agencies or nonprofits, and there is little doubt that how the American Civil War is remembered and interpreted has been skewed by those more sympathetic to the Confederacy. The potential outlier is the National Park Service. However, for decades, the Park Service, they avoided controversy simply by focusing on military actions and leaders, but that approach proved um, Proved, uh, provided, I'm sorry, provided little in terms of context or meaning about why the war is important to the American narrative. 
It was not until the late 1990s that political and social pressure and issues became a consistent part of the NPS battlefield interpretation. It took a literal act of Congress to bring about that change. But there was another uh, initiative that was taking place, as I mentioned, in Richmond. And, and again, this was the first time these narratives came together in the same place. Um, now, the other thing that we have to understand during this period is that when the war was over, The Confederacy continued to seize upon what it needed during the course of the war, and that was framing a national, national narrative, a nationhood early, to bind these states together. And in its narrative, it was reclaiming, they said that they were reclaiming the founders' intent under God's favor to flourish this new state that with each state acting in its sovereign and independent character, the Confederate States of America held together a fragile alliance that shared three key ideas. Those ideas were state sovereignty, white supremacy, and slavery as the national, I'm sorry, the natural condition for persons of African descent. However, when the Confederacy lost the war, the narrative shifted yet again. Slavery disappeared from it as quickly as Richmond's burned commercial district. Hmm. Soon the underlying cause for secession was all but erased despite volumes of documents making clear each state's intent for withdrawing from the Union. The rallying cry of states' rights and brother against brother waging war became the dominant narrative. Again, the mantra, our lost glorious cause, would soon be reflected in numerous post-war memoirs. Over the course of the next 150 years, not only in Richmond, but in communities all over the country, we were they were able to frame the war in its meaning from personal perspectives and social motives. And that's critical. And herein lies this dynamic that I was talking about. Museums, we grapple with this all the time. There are three parts. There's the history, what actually happened, what the record tells us. And we recognize that there are gaps in that record. But when you combine it with archaeology and other studies, you begin to get the picture much, much fuller. The second element is what we call heritage. Heritage is what each community chooses to remember about that event. And then memory are those far more personal things. That is sitting on the porch with your great-grandfather or your grandfather and hearing stories about his grandfather going off to battle to defend his home when the Yankees came through. <clears throat> the challenge with all of that is they're incomplete. They're incomplete and often inaccurate. So let's jump into it. So these are the events that most scholars will agree led to the American Civil War. Starts off with the Missouri Compromise. What are we going to do with these new territories that are coming in? And we established the Missouri Compromise, which says, well, uh, we'll make California a free state, and then we'll make this one a slave state, and then we'll let the others figure it out. And you know, But this is what we're going to do. We'll, we'll compromise. We'll keep the balance. Because here's the thing. Because of the way our US Constitution was written, the South had overwhelming political power for the first 70 years of our nation's being because they were allowed to count enslaved people for political representation. 
It wasn't that they were saying black people are three-fifths of a man. Brothers and sisters, please stop saying that. It was about political representation. It was giving power to the slave-holding South. Population at the start of the war, roughly 10 million people, 4 million of whom are enslaved, and they get to count them. This was the compromise of the Constitution to actually bring the, these colonies together to even have a nation. They compromised on this point. And that decision gave the South overwhelming power, Supreme Court power, presidential power, congressional power. And they wielded it. Nat Turner's rebellion was a problem. He wasn't the first. But it was a problem. He was literate. He used the Bible as justification, the scripture as justification for what happened. And folks were terrified. And there was a good reason to be terrified. I mean, it's a little few years earlier. But I mean, <laughs> given that there were parts of the South that literally had populations that were 60 and 70% black, this was a very real problem. Haiti had gained its independence. Hey, do you all realize, let's understand this, Haiti was the second nation in the Western Hemisphere to gain independence from a European power. And she got shut down because it was black. The rest of the world shut her down, wouldn't trade with it, wouldn't provide aid or support because it was a nation founded from a slavery rebellion. But I digress. Nat Turner, Nat Turner's rebellion, oh my God. In Virginia, they still talk about Nat Turner's rebellion in Southampton County because somebody's decided they want a statue of Nat Turner. Ah, right? The Wilmot Proviso, this is coming after the um, uh, Mexican-American War. Uh, this is another attempt to limit slavery because the North is now gaining political power. Why? Immigration. More Western Europeans are coming into the North and they are gaining their political clout. They are balancing the scales. And so there is also a threat, political threat, that's taking place as well. And so um, Wilmot, the Wilmot Proviso was put into place to say, hey, if we bring Mexico in, since we've won this territory, it cannot be a slave state. It cannot. And part of the logic behind it was because Mexico had already abolished slavery. Compromise of 1850, this was a real no-brainer. This one did not work well at all. Compromise of 1850, the biggest part of that that became problematic um, was uh, the Fugitive Slave Act was a part of that compromise. Um, this is where, if a, you know, in order, if you, okay, if you don't want us to expand, then you've got to return our slaves when they run away. You can't keep our folks with this underground railroad thing that's going on. We don't like it. We got slaves running away. We don't like any of this. Return them. And we're going to send bounties into Pennsylvania and Michigan and New York to come and get our runaways. Well, those states said, no, you're not. That, that no. That's, slavery is illegal in our places. And therefore, anybody that comes here is a free person. That's the law. That was one of the first real tests of this idea of states' rights. <laughs> Uncle Tom's Cabin, never underestimate the power of, of uh, <laughs> popular culture. This book set the world on fire. The South immediately started looking for people to write books to talk about how benign and wonderful slavery was. Because this book spread all over the world. And as Lincoln referred to Harriet Beecher Stowe as the little woman that started this war, that's how significant that book was. Bleeding Kansas. Because of these compromises, Kansas becomes um, a territory that is really 
people are at each other's throats constantly because Kansas is pushing for statehood. And the compromise was the states will decide. So the South, wealthy planters in the South, were getting able-bodied 21-year-old men and sponsoring them to move to Kansas to impact the vote. The folks who had already settled those areas were very angry about that, and they clashed and clashed and clashed. And one of those people who was a part of that was this guy right here, John Brown. I haven't deliberately skipped over the Dred Scott decision, which, oh, good Lord. Okay, so the Dred Scott decision basically says, yeah, I can take my slave anywhere, and he's, he's always going to be my slave. People didn't necessarily like that either. John Brown is now furious. He's gone through Bleeding Kansas, the Dred Scott decision. He is a firebrand, and John Brown's raid occurs. He comes to Michigan in advance of that raid to get support. He meets with several people in, in the Detroit area to get support. Uh, Frederick Douglass is up there. It's, it's a meeting that was held at the Finney House, the, the Finney, I'm sorry, the Finney Tavern in Detroit. Um, and there is a private meeting of the abolitionists, and John Brown goes asking for their support to wage this war. And Frederick Douglass tells him, no, you will not win. We need something bigger. Slave revolt won't do it. We need something bigger. Almost prophetic. Meanwhile, we got a new political party that's showing up. These really radical, radical group calling themselves Republicans. <laughs> and let me be clear, they're not you. Very different political party. They were highly progressive. They were, um, at the time, they were a party who said, not only do we not want slavery to expand, the radical side of the party wanted full and equal civil rights for men and women, regardless of ethnicity or background. It was extraordinarily radical. And their increasing popularity was a threat to the South. The Democrats, principally. The Whigs, principally. And when so much so of a threat that several states in the South did not even put Lincoln or the Republicans on the ballot. And he still won. And when he won, that was a signal that the North had turned against the South, or at least that's how the South interpreted it. And the first state, South Carolina, secedes with Lincoln's election. By April of 1861, those rabble-rousers down there in South Carolina decide that they are not going to give up Fort Sumter, which is a federal fort, and they fire upon it. And well, the rest is history. So what exactly did the CSA stand for? CSA, Confederate States of America. Well, believe it or not, their Constitution is very similar in a lot of ways to the U.S. Constitution, but there are three big differences. Article 1, Section 9 prohibited the Confederate government from restricting slavery in any way. No bill of attainer, ex post facto law, or law denying or impairing the right of property in Negro slaves shall be passed. Not up for discussion or debate. Article 4, Section 2, also prohibited states from interfering with slavery. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens of several states and shall have the right to transit and sojourn in any state of this confederacy with their slaves and other property. And the right of property in said slaves shall not thereby be impaired. And then last but not least, this is the biggie. Article 4, Section 3, Clause 3, offered to slavery in all future territories conquered or acquired by the Confederacy. That lovely little lie that slavery was dying out, that lovely little lie about, wasn't really about slavery. 
at least not politically, right? No. In fact, and we'll be doing an exhibit in um, 2019 on this, this expansionist plans, the Confederacy thought they were going to win so much, either win or be allowed to leave the United States, that they had ambassadors in different parts of the country and they had a military strategy, which is in our archives, for which they had planned to expand their territory. Why? Because at the start of the American Civil War, the American South held 90% of the world's cotton market. That's where their wealth came from and it was significant. That's where their political power came from, it was significant. Questions? And when you look at, this is a nice little word cloud. This word cloud was put together using the Articles of Secession for all of the seceding states that formed the Confederacy. These are the words used. Yep, you got states, big old states, constitution, government, but we got some other words that don't get slammed together, which is kind of interesting. Slavery, non-slaveholding, anti-slavery, slaveholding, slaves, race-free now. Every single one of them make very clear what their intent. Does that mean that the small farmer who didn't own slaves is supporting what these secession documents said. That's another argument that we often hear. Does that mean they are, look, the Confederacy, they had a draft and you were expected to go. Confederacy also had a very high desertion rate. It was not unified in the beginning the way people like to think. Tennessee is a perfect example. Missouri is a perfect example. Missouri had representation both in the United States government as well as the Confederate government. Tennessee was essentially three states in one. <sighs> Pie charts, I like those two. We all different learners. <coughs> These are again from the secession documents, the language used. Looking at the populations, I'd already shared with you what we have with the population uh, in, the, in the South. And clearly, the Union, in terms of population, had a much larger population from which to draw, resources from which to draw. The wealth, however, was not quite as far off as one would think. Industries. Confederacy versus Union, the border states, which are actually serving both sides. Enlistment strength. Now, I have to stop here for a minute because soldier demographics for the Confederate Army are not available due to incomplete and destroyed enlistment records. But I do feel that it's important to address this question, which is a new issue, a part of this whole bargaining psyche that I've been talking about, this idea of the um, black Confederate soldier. How many of you have heard that? Please raise your hand. Okay, let me be clear. The Confederacy used slave labor, without a doubt. However, Jefferson Davis, the government, the army made it very clear, every single one of these generals made very clear that they did not want black soldiers for the sole purpose of having a black soldier meant, meant that we were equating them to white men in terms of loyalty and valor in the field. And therefore, we couldn't sustain this. When they finally agree to pass legislation to make it happen, it is in March of 1865. A thousand men who had formerly been enslaved could only 
re-enlist with their master's permission and once they served, they would be given their freedom, but they never saw a day of battle. They mustered on Richmond's Capitol Square and never saw a day of battle. Because guess what? When they were called to arms in March of 1865, the war was almost over. In a few short weeks, Lee and Grant face off again at Petersburg. They face off again as they're heading into Richmond, and it's over. Lee surrenders. Okay, okay. African Americans, roughly 180,000 will serve, starting in 1863. And this is because of the Emancipation Proclamation. Another one of those things that's often maligned. It didn't really free anybody. Actually, it did. But more important what it did, one of the clauses of the Emancipation Proclamation was allowing what was already a half a million runaway slaves from the South who had fallen in and joined in with federal troops, allowing them to now don a uniform to form the United States Colored Troops. And Michigan fielded four regiments of USCTs, predominantly freemen, but Michigan sends large numbers of men, black men, to fight. So here's the class structure of the South, because this always comes up. 76% 70, of the population are non-slaveholding. So why would they fight for a government, an institution that is going to preserve slavery. Why would they do that? Why do you drive a Toyota and want a Benz? <laughs> because you're missing the bigger point. It isn't necessarily just about slavery. It was about white supremacy. various occupations. I'm going to move through these because I really want to get to the good meaty stuff. Um, but this is, these are our numbers, our casualties when it was all said and done. For those of you who have heard the number of uh, dead during the American Civil War at 620,000, that number was revised probably about five or ten years ago as more work into the archives actually uh, digging further into those files and the number is more like 750,000. Prisoners of war, and that's, by the way, that, that number, 750,000, does not include the civilian population that died from either starvation or disease. So, these flags, monuments, and symbols. That's the backstory. These flags, monuments, and symbols. How did they end up on our landscape? How did they end up everywhere? By the way, this image, this image of Confederate soldiers and so forth, this is in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. These are part of the windows that they recently took out. How does that happen? Is it really remembrance or is it hate? Because these symbols have been used Good Lord, really since the 1890s, whether it's a reunion of soldiers or whether it's an assertion of one sort or another. And then people say, well, we got to get rid of the Confederate flag. And of course, being the public historian that I am, I always say, okay, which Confederate flag? We have within our own collection, we have over 350 of them. But I recognize that most people are not talking about the Pocahontas. <laughs> and even if they're talking about the home guard type like this one, or you know the national flag of the Confederacy, I know they're not talking about this one. What they're talking about aren't even these other battle flags. What they're talking about is that one. Let me go back. What's referred to as the Southern Cross, the Army of Tennessee. 
Why? <laughs> because this is the one that Nathan Bedford Forrest created and used when he formed the Ku Klux Klan in Tennessee. This was the one that was supposed to reassert control over a black population having way too much fun being free. Now, as the story goes, Nathan became so troubled by the violence that was now being meted out against black folks that he withdrew from the, Confederate, from the KKK and denounced it. But this is the flag that became the symbol of American terrorism and continues to serve that function for a lot of people. And then you ask the question, well, Confederate symbols, where are they? Well, you would expect that they would be here, right? Right? But guess what? Oregon, California, Nevada, Iowa, Michigan apparently doesn't have any, but I don't believe that yet. <laughs> I have to keep digging. Given what goes on in some parts of the state, I don't know about that. Um, they get there because the message spreads and people move. And when they move, they want to take with them those memories. My grandfather fought in the Civil War he moved out west after the war. We want to honor all those folks that moved out west, so boom, you get one. But see, here's the thing. A lot of these monuments, you got to know when they were put up to understand the additional meaning behind them. There are a number of them. There essentially are, uh, I said before three, but there's really four big periods of the largest monument building in the nation. The first uh, is during the war itself. These are where we find in the cemeteries, where even at Gettysburg, monuments were being built shortly after Gettysburg. This is to honor the dead. That's the first period, to memorialize. So the majority of them are in cemeteries. That's different. When they start showing up in public space, town square, in front of the courthouse, in front of city hall, in front of the state house, that starts happening in the second period, 1890s to about 1920. And many of them look like this. This also happens to be the period of Jim Crow. After, after Reconstruction has been abandoned and Plessy v. Ferguson has been ruled. And we see a huge spike in the numbers of monuments, not just Civil War monuments, because again, Civil War monuments north and south. Union, putting up a lot of monuments too, but mostly it's right around the war period itself within the first maybe decade or so as people are dying off. They're putting up statuary. But in the South, it becomes something entirely different. And you may notice this guy right here. I say you may notice him because he's essentially, actually, no, that's not the one. I have another picture. I'll get it. Um, because he looks just like the guy you have over on your, on your city square. There's a, there's a little uh, monument park. I drove by it last night. And we were driving by. I said, hey, I know him. <laughs> he's one of three uh, figures that were mass produced during the memorial period. And they just changed the uniform. <laughs> but it's the same guy in the exact same pose. Um, anywho, the, probably, the majority of them are really 
not subtle at all. The Jefferson Davis statue is called Invictus. Um, basically, we are vindicated. Our lost cause is vindicated. And, and it's this, it's this go oh my God. Um, most are, you know, like Lee on the horse, and you have quite a few of those, right? You know, this idea of the grand confederate. And communities put them up to sort of, you know, deal with their, their, their boys that die. But what happens is in these 1890s to 1920s, the language that they use on these is really troublesome. So imagine you are not only have been a former slave. For the first time, you are a man going to that courthouse to cast your ballot in the 1896 election, and you see that. When they were going up, people protested them. Not just black people, white people. White people in the South thought it was a travesty, but we were in trauma. We were still in trauma. So the fight only went so far. This buddy, you guys recognize this one, right? Stone Mountain, Georgia. This is the Mount Rushmore of the South. Yeah, try blasting that off. I don't even, I can't even. Okay, so. So, um, so then, so what's happened recently? What, why all of a sudden are we getting mad about flags and, and burning, you know, Confederate flags? And what is happening here? What, what's going on? Bree will tell you her story when, when she's here. Um, this happened. It brought it back to our consciousness. Nine churchgoers were massacred in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine people shot dead in church because he just wanted to kill some black people. And what's funny about that, oh, that's a whole nother conversation. Huh. Um, you know, he's clearly deranged. We can't call our domestic terrorism what it is. We come up with different language when it's young white boys doing this stuff, like that. When that picture showed up of Dylan Roof, people went ballistic in Carolina because that symbol was on their state house. That symbol in these statues are in front of their courthouses and city halls. This is what America saw. And people said, enough already. Why are we still dealing with this? And my phone jumped off the hook that summer. Calls from literally all over the world. What do these flags mean? And we were able to take people in the vaults and show them the different types of flags and the history of the flag and its changing meaning over time. And how this flag was actually transferred. This is not Lee's flag. This is not the Confederate battle flag. This is that Tennessee KKK flag that people fly and claim Southern heritage. But too fixed to their belief systems to even look at what the history was. So you can imagine how much fun my life is in Richmond. More so, all of this reverence for the flag is a relatively new phenomenon because the flag clearly was and has been, it's not just something from reenactors and history buffs, right? This is a symbol of hate. This is a symbol that became, was from the beginning a symbol of hate, depending on one's perspective. But certainly that Tennessee flag, it's been something that's been taken over by neo-Nazis, some very fine people. Um, <laughs> neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates, and they all fly this flag. 
They all fly this flag. So South Carolina, when the flag went down in South Carolina, sales went up. Because defiance, people who have no Southern heritage to speak of, freedom of speech, we're going to defend this, right? You can defend it, but please know what it is. You can love your drunk uncle, but please let's talk about him being an alcoholic. And how do we fix that and break that cycle? Sales went up. And it became a real challenge for us at the museum because we sell, or we used to sell, a variety of flags, none of which were the Tennessee flag. We sold Union flags of different types. We have the only collection of USCT flags that are available for those regiments. And we had a decision to make as an institution. Were we going to continue to offer the educational flags that come with an explanation of what they were and how they were used, or do we pull them? Because we could not control how people were going to try to use them. <sighs> so when the flag came down, immediately, Within the first few weeks of that, there were 173 pro-Confederate flag rallies in different parts of the United States. This map was done in 2016. This is where I live. This is where I was born. But look at this. What's going on over here? Again, I get this. Ohio. <sighs> so, statues. This is what I uh, talked about, what I said when they're going, that second period during the Jim Crow era. The third period was during the modern civil rights era. 1950s was the next spike of when roads get changed, names on them, schools, names get changed to honor Confederates in the 1950s. What happened in 1950? Brown v. Board. Montgomery bus boycotts. A new round of statuary went up. Over 200 plus Confederate statues went up in the 1950s and 60s. The last one to go up actually went up in 2016 in Danville, Virginia, the most recent Confederate monument. A lot of them, again, say stuff like this. I know you can't read it, so I'm going to try to read it for you. In commemoration of the 38th annual reunion of the United Confederate Veterans at Charlotte, North Carolina, June 4th through 7th, 1929, a state and city's tribute excuse me, of love and grateful recognition of the services of the Confederate soldiers whose heroism in war and fidelity in peace have never been surpassed, accepting the um, our arbitratement of war, they preserved the Anglo-Saxon civilization of the South and became master builders of a reunited country. Should that statue stay or should it go? That is ultimately the questions the communities are asking themselves. Communities put them up, communities are deciding one of two things, to either take them down or to use them as interpretive opportunities to teach what this stuff was really about. That is ultimately the choice that communities are making. 
But in some places, the imagery is so pervasive, they're making the choice to take away the most egregious. That's what happened in New Orleans. United States troops took over the state government and reinstated the usurpers, but the national election of November 1876 recognized white supremacy in the South and gave us our state. Should that one stay in front of the courthouse? Each one is different. In memoriam, no nation rose so white and fair, none fell so pure of crime. New generations are asking new questions and are making these decisions. The names that you see on that marker that I read to you earlier, that's in South Carolina. And those are the names of the nine parishioners who died in that church. And these are the conversations that are taking place all over the country. This needs to be updated, but this was as of August 17th of 2017. Uh, a lot has changed since then, um, and much more continues. So I tell people all the time, beware of half-truths, because you'll get half the story wrong. Gentlemen and ladies, I hope if nothing else, this evening, as we've shared this time together, that you've come to understand that the, digger, the deeper we dig, the more we begin to understand. And when we be, have a little bit of compassion, and this may sound a little odd coming from me after you've seen all of this, but when we begin to understand this from a point of trauma, it makes a heck of a lot more sense of how some of this could happen. But we have to be over it. We have to move past this. We have to find our better angels. We have to be willing to have these conversations and quite frankly, allow for new questions. So with that said, let me close by offering this little tidbit. Because this is one that I'm dealing with myself right now. As we look as an institution, my institution, the American Civil War Museum, as we are looking at these things, we realize that we and you have the opportunity to become agents of narrative change. That narrative change is critical for our national healing. It becomes critical for us to have a conversation so that we can begin to understand that equality isn't oppression. Equality and understanding that this nation was founded for we have to dig deep, we have to get into those wounds a little bit so that they can heal properly. Not just what is expedient. Just because it's uncomfortable, we have to be able to look at it. And when you come to our institution, you have the opportunity to do that. Um, we're building a new facility right now. It'll be open in March of 2019. We have operate three locations. Um, and even the story that we told back in 2006 is old. 
um, we are stepping even further into this concept of the relevance of the war on the national psyche. From little things like the dollar bills that you hold in your pocket are a direct result of the American Civil War. Most people don't know that. We didn't have a unified currency before that. Federal government had to finance the war somehow. Banks weren't going to do it, so they decided to print money and go off the gold standard and issue single currency. It, the whole point was after the war was to bring all of that currency, those greenbacks, back and go back. The problem was the American public, North and South, loved this idea of having a single unified currency. Civil war matters. A civil war matters when you think about the level of carnage that was this war, that one general was so angry at Robert E. Lee for not only leaving the US Army to become commander, eventually, of the Confederate Army, that when they took over his home at Arlington, he immediately started burying Union dead there so that Lee would come home and remember what he had done. Our most sacred national cemetery was Robert E. Lee's plantation home. You didn't know that? Well, now you do. I could tell you some more things, obviously. Um, this is where we are. This war matters, but there's still two big pieces of it that we have not reconciled, and we have got to reconcile it, because we've been given three important legacies of this war. We have not reconciled. We have not reconciled what white supremacy and its structures have done to our nation and to the greatness that she can be. We have not dealt with that institutional problem. We talk about unborn babies and saving them for their potential, and we have not looked at what we have done to babies in our own communities by sheltering them off into bad schools or not even giving their parents an opportunity that a white convicted felon has an opportunity to get a job over a college-educated black man is white supremacy in action. It's structures in action. So we have to address those things. We have to address the inequity of that, not just on a racial standpoint, but on an economic one. Because the three legacies of the American Civil War that we continue to grapple with constitutionally, because these are the three that are directly born from the United States Civil War. It's the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. It is our shortest amendment. Slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist except as a punishment for crime. But Congress has the power, Congress has the power to protect it, and they didn't. So it became very easy, especially after Plessy v. Ferguson, to convict 12 and 13-year-old children of crimes they didn't commit and essentially commit them to lives of servitude under a prison system. The 14th Amendment is far more complex. That's what gives us national debt and the responsibility to repay it. But it also says any person born here is a citizen, period. And that was to protect and to provide citizenship to the four million formerly enslaved people and their progeny would be citizens of this country. That was the intent of the 14th Amendment. It is the amendment that we grapple over under the Dreamers Act and all of this other foolishness. Civil War, if you're born here, you're a citizen, period.
That's what it says. Then the 15th Amendment, the right to vote shall not be infringed. <sighs> Lord, these are all Civil War, post-Civil War amendments to our United States Constitution. That's all I got to say. Um, I hope that you consider all of these and more questions. I hope that my comments tonight have raised new questions. I hope that some level of what I've shared with you in midst of humor and in midst of provocation have actually encouraged you to think more deeply about what role you want to play in this conversation. That was Christy Coleman. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political, political significance excuse me, of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit HowensteinCenter.org and follow HowensteinGVSU on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.